Never opened a sermon with this, but I'm doing it this morning. Here's a pop quiz question for you. Pretty well everyone here speaks English, so the question is, what are the seventh, eighth, and ninth letters of the English alphabet? I won't speak further until you've told me. G-H-I, G-H-I. On a Thanksgiving Sunday, we're, we're thinking of the virtue of gratitude. The letters G-H-I in that sequence are, for me, the three most important virtues that I have sought to build my life upon and that my wife and I have sought to train our children and our grandchildren. And that is gratitude, humility, and integrity. There are other virtues. I'm fully aware of that, and we need to be working on them all. I'm saying those would be my top three. Uh, this morning, I'm going to speak on one of them, and you can pretty well guess which one. It's gratitude. Yes, gratitude. And the pop quiz question is further proof of what I'm wanting to get behind on here. I wanted you to think, because I believe that clear thinking will lead to clear thanking. I truly believe that. If we think clearly, according to truth, we will end up thanking. And it won't be just like children in a public school setting who are taught around Thanksgiving to be grateful. They're not taught to whom to be grateful. My wife has taught in the school systems for years. It's not just being grateful. It's being grateful to God. Because there is a psychological response in the human mind to actually begin to forget and to cloud our thinking. And to think that we actually have a longer list of complaints than, than Thanksgiving. And that's never been the case. It never will be, of course. There's an amnesia that sets in if we're not careful. Thanksgiving is the solution and the antidote to amnesia. Forgetting the good benefits of God's great, big, good hand. We need to remember that we are blessed beyond our deserving and that we are beneficiaries of God's goodness. And Thanksgiving is a great time for the recalibration of our minds and our hearts. I was a pastor for all my working career, and when Thanksgiving came, I always gave a Thanksgiving message. I broke from any and every series I ever had, and I would always stress the point of Thanksgiving. Not that on Thanksgiving Sunday you better be thankful. That was never my point, and I always stressed. We need to be thankful every day. It needs to be the cultivation of our lives every day. We need to be a people of genuine gratitude. It's a powerful witness. It's one of the most powerful witnesses that we can have to thank, have a thankful heart. And please understand very quickly, I am not talking this morning about having good manners and being polite and saying thank you when you should say thank you. I'm not talking about that. I'm miles from that, okay? I'm talking about having a thankful heart. 
And having a thankful heart is quite different from simply politely saying, thank you. I believe very strongly that a thankful heart is one of the keys to a contented and growing Christian life. It helps us as we approach the challenges of life, as we accept the circumstances of life, as we address the issues of life, to have a thankful heart. I want to share a couple of good quotes with you now on this virtue of gratitude. Robert Louis Stevenson, you've heard of that man. He said this, and I quote, the person who has stopped being thankful has fallen asleep in life. Has anybody here fallen asleep in life? A quote from Abraham Heschel. Abraham Heschel was a Jewish rabbi during World War II in the 1930s into the 1940s. He was in a concentration camp. Providentially, he was able to escape. He wrote down many things. He wrote down this, and I quote, There is a built-in sense of indebtedness in the consciousness of man, an awareness of owing gratitude, of being called upon at certain moments to reciprocate. This morning, we're going to examine a marvelous passage of Holy Scripture in which we detect a thankful heart on full display. We're going to look at the heart of King David. He had a heart of gratitude. And a certain prayer of gratitude coming from the heart of David is recorded in the Old Testament. Now, you may be thinking, I'm going to the Psalms, and I love the Psalms. I've preached many messages from the Psalms, but I'm not preaching from the Psalms, but from the historical book of 1 Chronicles chapter 29. So, if you have your Bible, let's turn there to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. I'm looking at verses 10 through 19. It is the recording of David's prayer of exuberant, joyful, excited thanksgiving to God on a high water day in the life of King David. You need to understand that chapter 29 is the last chapter of the book of 1 Chronicles because it marks the ending of the reign of David. And then in 2 Chronicles chapter 1, it's the beginning and the inauguration of King Solomon, his son, as king. That's why the books are split at that point. But the man, David, is an old man at this point. I, I needed to work out the exact age, but I didn't. He's an old man. Uh, how do I say that? He's an older gentleman. Uh, probably in his 80s. I would say maybe around 80 or so. And it was a certain event that caused his heart to be overwhelmed with a very warm response of thanksgiving to God. And I'm going to read verse 10 through 19. Just follow as I read. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. 
In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. Yesterday, gathered around our, our table, our family, two of our three children were there, all of our six grandchildren. And before we had dessert, my wife had put together some Bible verses on Thanksgiving on their name tags at the table. Each one read theirs, except the youngest, who could not read yet. And, uh, and then I was the last person. They had all gone out for a hike. I stayed home and slept for an hour and a half because I was exhausted. Well, I came out into the living room, and they pretty well all shared, and then I... I took my name tag, and my wife, knowing what text I would preach from this morning, had down there 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 12, 13. And I read that, and I said to the, the family, before you were all born, before your mom and dad were married, I read this portion of Scripture, and I memorized verses 10 through 13. That has pretty well stayed with me all these years. So when I memorized it back then in the King James Version. And I, I just stressed, I didn't preach, I just stressed the importance of thanksgiving to the family. It is crucial. It is crucial. In this wonderful portion of the Word of God, we detect a thankful heart with all five of our senses. This is the way I'll describe it just now very quickly. It's all part of a brief introduction. Um, we see, in this passage, we see the evidence of a thankful heart. We hear, we hear the sound and the beat of a thankful heart. We, we smell, we smell the aroma of a thankful heart. We taste the flavor of a thankful heart. And we touch the contours of a thankful heart. Here in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 10 through 19. I want to be, if I can, a tour guide into a thankful heart. David, 
David was a, a man of war. David was not a perfect man, but in the New Testament, he was described by Dr. Luke as a man after God's own heart. We need to have more of the heart of David, and uh, we're going to be looking at his thankful heart today. And at the same time, I would ask you if you have the courage to look in the mirror and to ask the question, do I have a thankful heart? Will you have that courage this morning? As he looked out on the assembly of people, David didn't gather everybody together to thank them. But he turned upward, he looked up, and he prayed a prayer of thanksgiving to God. Now this was the occasion, we all need to understand the context here. David had wanted to build a temple, a temple for God. It would never be his privilege and responsibility to do so. It would be his son, Solomon's privilege and responsibility. But David made preparations, and there are four different funds that are drawn upon for the preparation of the building of the temple in Jerusalem. And all four funds are mentioned in the first nine verses, which we did not read. You can look them up yourself, but they're in this order. There's the royal treasury, verse 2. There's David's own private wealth, and all kings are, are rich, right? So he drew upon his own wealth. And then the leaders, verses 6 and 7, they willingly got behind the project. And then verses 8 and 9 describe the people contributing. But David didn't gather them all to say, thank you, thank you, thank you. You know what he did? He looked up over them and he thanked God because he realized that God had been and is the source. And we know that this information <clears throat> is accurate. This is part of God's holy word. It is inspired. But there were three different writers uh, of probably this high water mark day in David's life. Verse 29, uh, we didn't read it, but verse 29 of chapter 29 records three different men, Samuel, Nathan, and Gad, who were biographers of the life and reign of King David. So they have these details down. There are, you know, six eyes, three minds converging on the recording of this very momentous day in the life of David. So the outline for the message is threefold. A thankful heart praises God. A thankful heart ponders God. A thankful heart petitions God. Uh, there are parts that I'm just going to have to be briefer on. But let's take the first sight on the tour of a thankful heart. And that is, a thankful heart praises God for who he is and what he does. Verses 10 through 13. In holy awe and deep, great joy, uh, David ascribes praise to the Lord. And in Hebrew, of course, he spoke, um, Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh is the personal name for God revealed to Abraham. And Elohim is just the Hebrew name for God. And it's absolutely a wonderful connection. Don't lose the point here. There's only one God, right? There can only be one God. Many religions, many ideas, but there can only be one God. 
And so the one true God is the personal God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Israel, the second name given to Jacob at a crisis change in his life. And so David addresses God for who he is, the one true God who is the personal covenant-keeping God of grace and mercy. And he praises the Lord. It's my conviction that a thankful heart will praise God. Don't tell me you have a thankful heart if you have no praise for God. Don't say that. No, a thankful heart will give praise. Whether you can sing or you can't sing, you will praise God. You will speak his praise. You will sing his praise. And so he ascribes praise to the Lord. Note carefully, David says, forever and ever. Uh, David wasn't saying this is a very good day to give thanks to God. No, forever and ever. What things in life bear that kind of weight of eternality, of being worthy of ongoing, unending, eternal praise? Nothing. And no one but God, but God alone. Into verse 11, David makes mention of five of God's awesome attributes. And these are only five. Please understand, it's not an exhaustive list. Uh, the attributes of God make a wonderful study. But David is just mentioning five. He didn't have to mention them all. But the first one is greatness. I mean, uh, people talk about greatness. Well, consider God's greatness. God's greatness. How incomprehensible. Power. People talk about power. Think about God's power. How unfathomable the power of God. Glory. Ah, people talk about fame and glory. Well, think about God's glory. God's glory. How indescribable. Victory. Victory. Again, people have proclaimed pride about victory in sports or politics or war. Well, think about victory attached to the one true God. Get your head around that one and realize that's real victory. That's ongoing victory. And then majesty, God's majesty. There have been kings and queens that have ruled on this planet for thousands of years, but none of them will have the majesty compared to the God of infinite glory. In the English Standard Version from which I'm preaching here this morning, and the New International Version, in three times in verse 11, the pronoun yours is found. Yours, O Lord, uh, at the end in the earth is yours, yours is the kingdom. In the King James Version, you can guess that it would be the personal, second person pronoun, thine, thine. Let me, for the sake of, not argument, but for the sake of a lesson, use a play of words, thine and mine, thine and mine. They rhyme, so here it goes. If your heart is not set upon God and upon his word. And if your mind is not thinking clearly according to truth, you will be tempted to say regarding those five attributes, 
mine. Mine is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. But for a person who's thinking clearly and who is focused on the one true God, Yahweh revealed as we know in the new covenant through Jesus Christ, you will be compelled to say, thine, thine is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. In the last part of verse 11 and into verse 12, David focuses on two practically meaningful truths about God. And these are life changers, friends. These are life changers. The first one, God is the source. God is the source. David says there, for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. We can't proclaim ownership of point zero 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 one of anything. We didn't create it. God has created it. He is the source. So my point is, go to the source. I've said this before from this pulpit. If God is the source, go to the source. All strength and power come from him. In verse 11 and 12, and almost through the entire prayer, the sense of where strength comes from, comes from God. I mean, when we get sick, I haven't been feeling well this week, but I'll tell you, every day I realize God is my strength. I'm not top form today, I know that. But God is still my strength. God is still my strength, and he is still your strength. You can't heal the body. And this is no demeaning for those in the medical field, but you can't heal anybody either. You can only work with what God has first established in the human body system. The medical system needs to fully acknowledge that. God has made the body, and the body recovers according to what he has set in place. Here are a couple of quotes for you to reinforce this truth that God is the source. This one's a short one, but please, I'll say it twice. Don't forget it. It's a good one. When you drink from the stream, don't forget the spring. When you drink from the stream, don't forget the spring. A stream isn't there just automatically. There's a source to every spring, uh, to every stream. Ignatius of Loyola prayed this prayer. It's recorded this way, and I quote, All that I am, all that I have, thou hast given me, and I will give it back again to thee, to be disposed of according to thy good pleasure. So the first practical thought here, coming out of these verses, God is the source. The secular world is not saying that. Where are you hearing that? God is the source. The second truth is God is the sovereign. If God is the source, then go to him. If God is the sovereign, bow to him. Everybody bows to something or somebody. Don't say you don't. You bow to yourself or somebody else or some other idea or philosophy. Everybody does. Okay, It's a natural tendency into the human psyche to do that. So David looks up, 
And he acknowledges God as the sovereign, where it says, yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above what? Does it say some things? Most things. It says all. All things. All things. All domains, all realms, visible and invisible. No scientist has made those realms. Scientists only work with what is. God is the creator, and he is the source and sovereign. Yahweh Elohim, therefore, does not run for office. He does not run for office for a certain term. He is the eternal king, and he is God over all. And I've really tried to work on this in my own heart and life, and not try, and not rather worry about who's who's leading this nation or that nation. It's been in tumult and trouble since the dawn of human history and since the fall. And there can be a tendency for us to be worried, anxious, agitated. But why not on Thanksgiving Sunday think really clearly, like purely clearly, and realize there's a God on the throne. He's not abdicating the throne. And he's not going off the throne in four years or five or whatever. He is the eternal sovereign. And so the first section ends with the, in verse 13, and now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. For all that David saw out there, for the four funds that were very much alive and the, the preparations that being made, he wasn't gathering the people to say thank you. He was there to thank God. The second sight on the tour of a thankful heart, a thankful heart ponders God for his provision and perception. In verses 14 through 17, David ponders the marvelous ways of God with finite, broken, sinful human beings. And how does verse 14 begin? But who am I? And what is my people that we should be thus able to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. It takes a short-sighted person, a small-hearted person, to think they're self-made, and they've got it all together. And they've made what they've made, I'll tell you. You better think straight. You better think clearly. No, we are recipients. We have only given of what we have first received. Think that one through, my friends. We have only given of what we have first received. Do you acknowledge that truth in your own life, practically? Those who are parents here, do you let your kids know that it's not just dad and mom making all the, the big bucks, but you're... Your creator is allowing you to provide for your families. God's hand of provision, verses 14 through 16. I'm just trying to summarize some things here, but David's making it very clear that everything that has come about for that momentous high water day was sourced in God, provided by God. So God is the creator, God is the owner. And the other truth that dovetails with that is this, and a lot of people don't always see it, but it needs to be, it's a complementing truth. 
the fact that God is the source, the owner, we are the stewards, the managers, the trustees. We didn't invent it, we didn't create it, but God allows us in his grace and mercy and wisdom to manage things. For how long? Well, what we would call your lifespan. I'm not responsible for what happened in the 14th century or this 18th century, okay? I was born in the 20th. I'm alive in the 21st. I will not be alive in the 22nd. It's my lifespan for which I'm responsible for, not just material wealth, but opportunities, giftings, abilities, and relationships, and so on. All the things that are wrapped up. It's not just one thing. There are many things that God has given to us, and we are responsible for that. Uh, a term that I would use right now that is a comprehensive term with regard to our responsibility is the word stewardship, stewardship. Stewardship of all we are and have, because all we are and have come from God. And David says in verse 15, all our life we have been strangers and sojourners. The word I would use is pilgrims. Cheryl and I, a long time ago, realized we were pilgrims. We were in ministry for our years, and she taught at times, and I pastored, and we realized we were pilgrims. And we incorporated that truth into one of our emails, and we still have one of our emails emphasizing the pilgrims feature. So God's hand of provision for the time, talent, and treasure he has entrusted to us for which we are responsible. In verse 16, he says three times the word your, your name, uh, your hand, your own. So David was acknowledging the source and the sovereign overall. God will always be the source and sovereign, and you never will be. I never will be. We will always be the trustees and the stewards. God's hand of provision, verse 14 to 16, and then God's eye of perception, verse 17. What does it say there? I know, my God, you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart have I freely offered these things. Um, what David is acknowledging there is that God sees through the gift, the amount, and the giving, the action. And God always has. God sees right through me. And God sees right through you. And he sees whether our gift and our giving is characterized by that one I word I mentioned in my introduction, integrity. Integrity is the integrating of life so that it, it forms a seamless coat or cloak or something like that where it's, it's together. It makes sense. What you say is what you do. What you stand for is what you live by. That's integrity. And every generation has required that, but there seems to be a great lack and flaw and gap. There should not be a great gap in the life of one who says they are a follower of Christ. We're not perfect, so I'm not saying integrity is perfection, but it's the pursuit of integrating life as, as a whole under God in his blessing. 
Because giving can be done in a whole host of ways. You, you, you know that, you know that, right? I mean, some people give humbly and some people give proudly. Some people give dependently and some people give independently. Some people give generously, some people give sparingly. Some people give gratefully, some people give grudgingly. And there are all kinds of gifts being given all around the world. Donations made without number. But God sees through. God sees through our hearts. His eye of perception is perfect. There's one more stop on the tour of a grateful heart. Verse 18 and 19, <clears throat> a thankful heart petitions God for both groups and individuals because that's really what happens in these last two verses. Before David closes with amen, he prays for two different sets of humanity. The first one is the nation of Israel, the royal subjects, which David will only be over them for the next, wait, I don't know, a few days. He's going to be dying because the end of the chapter marks the finality of the life of King David, the second king of Israel. So David prays for the nation, and then David prays for one solitary person, the next king, his own son, Solomon. So let's briefly review that. First of all, David's petition for his people, I, I'd put it this way, the macro perspective, um, there are groups, you know, you don't just pray for individuals. You might think maybe that's the most personal way to do it, but we can't always do that. At times we have to pray for the teachers, the groups, the politicians, and so we can't name every last one. There are hundreds, thousands of people in those positions. So sometimes we need to pray for kings and authorities. You can't name them all. So there's a legitimate place for that. And what are the requests that David makes? First of all, keep their desire or keep their purpose, as he says there in uh, verse 18. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Uh, a certain phrase that has come to play in the last 10 years or so, I haven't used it very much, but... Uh, a one-off. David did not want this to be a one-off, you know, like that one unusual, unique event that uh, is never repeated. Well, not so in the heart of David. He wanted what was displayed and demonstrated that day to be something the ongoing uh, evidence in the heart of the people of God. There's something very beautiful about consistency and continuity. You know, I, I, I've lived long enough to see people rise and fall in politics and spiritual things. I, I could write a lot on that, but I'm not going to. I'm just saying, you know, there's something beautiful about steadiness, beauty, regular, stick to itiveness. And, and that's what David was asking that the sacrifice that was evident there before them all. Uh, people giving willingly, sacrificially, cheerfully, abundantly, that that would just keep on going. Why not let it keep rolling? 
That's my prayer for this congregation too. I'm not your pastor. I'm one of the elders, but our elders are praying that God's people would catch the joy of giving. You know, when you've caught the real thing, nobody can argue you out of it. Nobody can say, you know, you can't give anymore. Don't give. No, no. No, you, you realize you've caught the spirit of it. You, you realize you've been a recipient. And when you catch the sense that you're a recipient, you will not put a lot of arguments up to, as to why I'm not going to give anymore. You won't do that. Because God keeps giving. And I believe a spirit-filled person will continue to give. And that's what David prays, that God would so work in the hearts of people because David couldn't do it. He was leaving the scene. He was walking off the stage of human history. He was going to die. The ancestor of our Lord Jesus, he was going to die. He'll be raised, but he's still in the grave. David's still in the grave, you know that? But he was praying for the people who would outlive him, that their purpose would continue, and then the second, keep their heart. Direct their hearts toward you, it says here in the English Standard Version. One of the things that <clears throat> God desired and really required of the kings of Israel and Judah, Israel, and then when they split Israel and Judah, would be <clears throat> that they would be shepherd kings. Now, that, that would be a revolutionary idea in the ancient world where kings were despots many times. They were... They had all power, total seemingly power. I'm talking human power. And anything they said, that would be it. But God wanted the kings to reflect his own heart. And so David was to be not just a shepherd boy, but when he became king, to be a shepherd king. And so David prayed as a pastor. He prayed as a pastor king. For the people that day, that their hearts would be toward God. Because David was leaving the scene, but the God of David was still on the throne. And there would be that need for ongoing witness and service and, and so on. So they served back then, David, around 1000 BC, 900. That's when he was around. Well, this is our time. This is our time. And you won't get another time. This is your time. This is my time. And then the last prayer, David's petition for his son, the micro perspective, one solitary man, the son of Bathsheba. He would be the third king of Israel. And he prays not first for his uh, administration as king. He prays personally that his own heart might be submissive to the law of God. And how does he say it in verse 19? Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart, that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes before me in all. He asked that Solomon would have a heart submissive to the holy word of God. Because if he wasn't submissive to the word of God, how could he reign in a way pleasing to God and for the benefit and prosperity and the good of the nation? No, Solomon had to be submissive too the law of God. My question is for parents here today, are we praying that our children would be submissive to the law 
and the word of God. Because you can't make it happen, okay? I'm a parent. And if you're a parent, you know you cannot force that. You need to teach children when they're young and so on. But when they reach adulthood, they have their own choices. So pray the prayer of David for your sons and daughters. That God would so work by his spirit that they would submit to his word. Because you can't do that. I can't guarantee for our three children in their 30s and early 40s to do that. Can't do it. I have to pray for our children. And of course we are. We're praying for our grandchildren. So that was the first request. The last request of the prayer is that Solomon would build God's house. David would never build a house. Solomon would. David prayed that Solomon would begin and complete that. Now, it's not that Solomon did all the work. There were others who entered into the labor of the building of the temple. And that was the first temple. Up until then, it was a tabernacle, a temporary dwelling. This would be a more permanent dwelling. It was not absolutely permanent because it was at one point destroyed. But notice the name. He doesn't use the word house of God. He doesn't use the word temple. What's the word he uses? The last line. That he may build the palace for which I have made provision. David wasn't talking about his own residence. He was talking about the house of the great king of kings. The palace. You know that. A palace is for a king. The point here is, parents... Let's pray that God by his spirit would so work in our children that they would hear, submit, and follow through on God's call and their mission, on God's call and mission in their lives. Now, you can't tell them and orchestrate what they are to do. My dad wanted me to be an architect. My dad realized our son. Our son John has a calling to preach God's word. May our sons and daughters hear the call in their generation and their time and fulfill their mission. In conclusion, as we have toured the heart of King David, we have detected a truly thankful heart. A thankful heart praises God. A thankful heart ponders God. A thankful heart petitions God. May each of us and all of us reflect that same heart of David. May a thankful heart characterize each of us and all of us from this day forward. I have been praying for the last two and a half weeks when I knew that I was going to be preaching. I have prayed that God would speak to hearts and that this Thanksgiving weekend really would be a game changer in many hearts. May it be so. Let us pray.
Father in heaven, we thank you for this blessed day, for this passage that has been retained in Holy Scripture. And I ask you, Lord, in my heart, in the hearts of each person, and those who may listen online, we pray that there might be a deep spirit working, stirring in the hearts of each one. That this uh, blessed virtue, this godly response of gratitude would be characteristic of my life and all of our lives. We want to please you, Lord. We know that when we have a thankful heart, we will praise you. When we have a thankful heart, we will ponder you. When we have a thankful heart, we will petition you. May it be so. For Jesus' sake.